Okay. Fine. So, we spoke about that the Torah is compared, the scent of Torah is compared to the scent of water. Right? And there were, there were two aspects about the Torah's scent of being like water that are more using the analogy, that are counterintuitive. Does anyone remember what they were? Right. So, what does that say about the Torah? Right. And so, it's not where it's meant to be. Right. Okay. Which is counterintuitive. So we tend to think of the opposite. We tend to think that giving us a Torah is somehow Hashem going out of Himself or whatever. Right. Okay. Um, and then, what was the other similarity between the water going down and the Torah? It's not in both places, right? So what does it mean that the Torah, if it's down here, it's no longer in heaven? Which is a verse. Lo b'shemayim he, it's not in heaven. What does that mean? That rulings are made on earth, not by God. Right. The rulings are made on earth. There's a famous story with the Alter Rebbe when he was in prison. Um, the famous Yutas Kislev story that the Alter Rebbe did not know why he was being imprisoned. And the... Baal Shem Tov and the Magid, who were his, Magid was his teacher, and the Baal Shem Tov was the founder of Siddhis, came to the Alter Rebbe and explained to him what happened. And um, so he said, well, maybe I, if I'm in prison for, because in heaven they're not pleased with my spreading of Siddhis, maybe I should stop. And um, they said, no, unless you start, you should continue. And they made a, based into a rule that he should continue. And when the previous Rebbe was in Petersburg, he actually had an opportunity to see the place where the altar was held. And when he come, came back to his father, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, the Rebbe Shab, the Rebbe Shab wanted to know if the cell was large enough to have three men in it. Because the idea being that if the altar, if the Baal Shem Tov and the Magen had come back in some sort of spiritual state, then they couldn't have made a basin to form a ruling. So they had to actually return to the world in a physical form. Because the Torah is part of the physical reality. And so he wanted to know, is the room actually big enough for the story to be true? And uh, yes, it, it is big enough for three men to stand in the room. Just saying something for, you know, Russian jail cells. Okay. We also spoke about the idea that, that the Torah is clothed in, 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 in the corporeal substance. That means that the, the way the mitzvah is done actually involves the physicality itself, right? Which is true of almost all mitzvahs, but not all mitzvahs, right? Um, and, and the way we see this is that when we start thinking about the mitzvah, we often move into this idea of mystical and spiritual, emotional meaning. And then you're like, okay, but, but what does that have to do with the actual mitzvah itself, right? Which is just holding the, and shaking the esrog or eating the matzah or whatever the case might be. Whereas there are mitzvahs where that kind of dichotomy doesn't exist at all because the mitzvah is really just a mental, emotional mitzvah to begin with. Loving Hashem, fearing Hashem, etc. Okay. Um, and in that sense, we see that the descent of those mitzvahs into the realm of speech and action is actually a further descent, which is a theme that the Alter Rebbe will build upon beginning in chapter 35, 36, 37. Well, beginning in 35, but really developing in 36 and 37. Okay. There's one last thing in this paragraph that was a new idea that we did not cover yesterday, which was the idea of the hidden descent, stage after stage in the descent of the worlds. Yes? Okay. So, 
Um, what I want to do is I want to first teach the idea of the descent of the worlds, okay? As a background idea to then understand what he's saying about Torah, okay? So the thing that we're learning now, which is called the descent of the worlds in, in, in the Hebrew, um, it's called okay? that is not the idea of the descent of the Torah. That is the backdrop that we need to understand what is unique about the descent of the Torah. Okay? So, there is an idea that many of you have probably heard that there is, yes. What does that mean? The backdrop that became unique? Yeah, in other words, in other words um, if you want to understand something, you usually need to put it in context of something else. Okay. Right? Um, simple example, um, for instance, if, if, I, if, I, if you tell a person who's completely secular, okay, um, you know, this guy, he doesn't drive on Shabbos because it's the Jewish Sabbath, right? The secular person automatically assumes that person is profoundly devout, right? But if you come from an Orthodox background, right? And by background, I mean you grew up Orthodox, but you have that kind of background knowledge, like that really doesn't mean much of anything, right? That's like, <laughs> that's basically like saying like, like that, that's the equivalent of saying like he doesn't go around beating up children in, 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 the, uh, in the playground, right? I mean, it's that level of compliance with what's expected, right? Like you have to be way out there to drive on Shabbos, yeah. right? You could be like cheating on your taxes, having an affair, and you know maybe even secretly doubt whether the Torah is true, and still not drive on Shabbos, right? So it's it's you see what I'm saying? To understand the meaning of something, you need to have a context, a background, in order to appreciate what it is. So if we talk about the Torah descending in this hidden way, that is being put into the context and the background of this idea of the descent of the worlds, or Seder Shdalshos. In other words, that there's the normal descent called the Seder Shdalshos, and then something is happening within that that is radically different, and that's what's going on with the Torah. So if we don't understand the baseline, we're not going to really understand what's really happening here. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, one of the things that Bali Tshuva often uh, become disillusioned by is that there's an understanding that if you become part of an Orthodox Jewish community, you're becoming part of a community filled with very spiritual, devout, pious people. And, and the answer is that, that that's not true. <laughs> so that becomes a, a, a challenge. Wait, why is it not true? Because uh, it's just not true. It's not true. No, because 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 the thing is like this: the Abishter God Almighty gave us Judaism in a format which is that it is that it is observance and observance-based and communal-based, and people have this wonderful thing, which is that we're social creatures, and we seek to be accepted by our communities and to be and to. Um, and to have status in those communities, and to succeed in those communities, and for our children to succeed in those communities, irrespective of what the actual norms of that community are. That is the nature of human beings, which is why the Rambam says if you live in a society that has negative culture and values, you should leave, because you should not rely on your own ability to maintain any sort of morality. Okay, so now, if you, for whatever reason, happen to grow up in a community of Shabbos observers, natural human tendencies is that you're going to 
Observe Shabbos. To what degree? To the degree that Shulchan Aruch says or the degree that your community expects? And that's basically how Orthodox communities survive, right? So therefore, and since people vary across the board from how intellectual, how emotional, how spiritual, how devout, how devious or outright evil they are, and there's no reason to think that in you know, the Orthodox community, which is people there by birth, that there's going to be any difference in that. People's natural tendency is going to have the whole range, right? So it's not a, it's not a self-selecting community of people. Like if you have a bunch of, of um, scientists get together, they're self-selecting. They're all there because they're interested in science. If you have a bunch of Bali Truva getting together, they're self-selecting. They're all there because they're interested in, in exploring Judaism, right? If you have a bunch of Orthodox Jews together, it's not self-selecting. It's just a... It's a default bunch of people who happen to share um, certain cultural beliefs and behaviors which reinforce and perpetuate themselves, um, which is part of God's plan for making sure Judaism survives. Um, so, but that being said, it, it does mean that, like, you know, just because someone keeps Shabbos doesn't mean that they're particularly spiritual or devout. Yeah. Um, and that's, of course, a, that's a tension both for the Baal Truva coming to the community. There's also a tension for the person in the community who wants to grow spiritually. Right? How do you balance the, that social dimension, that communal dimension with your own personal growth, etc., etc.? Topic for another time. Okay. So there's a concept called the descent of worlds. Are you familiar with this idea? Okay. So... What is this idea about? And this, before we get to the details, right? In every idea, you have the specifics and you have the, the, the general idea. So what is the idea of the descent of worlds? The descent of worlds. Or to put this another way, if you want to get the basic notion of what something is all about, you can ask yourself, well, what if we took it away? What would be different? Like, what if we took away the Seder Yeah, what would happen if we took away this idea of a Seder Shalsh, the descent of the world? That's not true. I mean, there wouldn't be the world the way we know it. Okay, but but is that the main point? Is part of it Hashem like contracting itself throughout the world and coming down to this world? Let let's let's speak more basically. Okay. If there is no descent of worlds, whatever that means, then. There is no way for there to be any kind of interaction or connection between Hashem and the world. Okay, that that's the idea. Okay. Um, so if you want to think of it very very simply, you have two sides of a river. If there's no bridge, those that are one side can't go to the other side. Those the other side can't go to the first side. Make sense? So. This idea of a descent of worlds means that there is a way of God coming to the world that allows the world to reciprocate and relate back to God. That's the basic idea. So you take away this descent of worlds, and what that means is you still have a world. You still have God who's the creator of the world. But God is not in any way coming to the world in an accessible way, so there's no way for the world to come back and relate to him. If you want to think of a, of a physical analogy for this, if someone is at the bottom, in other words, if you've got a person and you've got a deep pit, like a well, to get someone at the bottom of the pit is very easy, right? You take the person, you throw them down the pit, and now they're at the bottom of the pit, right? Problem solved, right? I don't know if that's such a great thing to do, but that's easy to do. However, that 
if you, then they're stuck there. If you lower a rope down, what does that lowering the rope down allow them to do? Climb back up, right? So creating the world without, without uh, this descent of worlds would be like throwing someone down a pit. You cause them to be down there, but now all you've done is you've created a distance that they can't come back to you. They can't, they, there's, no, there's no idea of reconnection. And what's the idea of Seder Ishtashalas? The idea of the descent of worlds is that there's a rope. The rope is lowered from above to below. And what does that enable? That enables a, a connection to Hashem going from below to above. So the fact that there's a below has nothing to do with the of worlds? The fact that there's a? Below. No. 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 So, so could God just have said, poof, there's a world and that's the end of it? Yeah, but then the world would exist in this kind of self-contained bubble and you would be precluded from ever having any kind of awareness of God. Now, obviously a world where you can't become aware of God is a very different world than the world we live in, right? But that's the main difference. That's what would happen. the fact that there's like physical or bad or whatever has nothing to do with sense of God. No, no, no. God, God, can, God can poof things into existence. Right, but like so he's no need for that. He chose to do it in that way because he wants something else. He wants that the world should be able to relate back to God. Right, because that was still an outcome of it. It wasn't a point, but it was still an outcome. Right, in other words, that the world is created. This is what the analogy of throwing the person down the well and then throwing the rope down is not a perfect analogy because, um, because those are two distinct acts, right? The, the descent of the world is not just something that is introduced to the world after the fact. It's, it's the way in which God creates the world. And that's discussed in Chassidus, why it has to be done that way. Why is it not that first you create the world and then you lower the rope? Yeah. Um, and, and the basic idea is that if that would be the case, then awareness of God would be something that is imposed on reality rather than something that is discovered from within reality. In other words, it has to be kind of built in from the beginning. Would it be I mean, there are, right, there, there are many. Th I'll give you an example of this idea, but this is like going way off topic in the education of children. Okay. Um, so, my children at one point mentioned something about some people not believing in God. That, are, that there's people that don't believe in God. I think they mentioned. I think they mentioned Jews not believing in God, or I don't remember exactly what the specifics were. I think it was Jews. There's some Jews that don't believe in Hashem. Something like that. And of course, me being me, I wouldn't, could not let that stand. And so I said, that's not true. Every Jew believes in God. And I think it went on to the sense that actually every person believes in God. And um, we had a little bit of back and forth. And my point was, well, just because people say they don't believe in God doesn't make it true. And just because that person doesn't aware that they have something, right? And I said, and I said, like, look, are there times where you say you're not hungry and we force you to sit down and eat, and all of a sudden, as you start eating, you discover you were hungry? <laughs> that happens, right? In other words, why should I take your self-reported description of yourself as true? A, you could be you could be consciously lying, right? You could be saying something because you don't want to admit it, the truth. And B, you could be engaged in self-deception, right? You're lying to yourself. Or C, you could just be just generally unaware, right? right? So the fact that people go around claiming they don't believe in God or acting they don't believe in God doesn't mean they don't believe in God. Mm -hmm. Any more than people say that I don't have a liver means they don't have a liver. I mean, like, you can say it, it doesn't make it true. Okay, now why did I feel that it was so important that my children thought about it that way? On the side that I was in the right, yeah. 
could always just say that it's just me being nitpicky. But we're gonna we're gonna we're going to assume there's a higher motivation there. Well, which person? Because I'm not that altruistic. Am I concerned about who they see? Themselves. Themselves. Right. Because if I allow them to have that mental model of belief, then what do they then think about their own belief in God? Well, they, they, as of right now, they do. But where does that come from? I'm actually getting at something, something a little subtler and I think more pernicious than that, which is even if they conclude that they do believe in God, and I know this from speaking to people who grow up religious, is that the story in their mind is, well, of course I believe in God because I was raised by parents who, which means my belief in God is not my own. That doesn't mean that they have doubts. Because what did I? What 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 model do I want them to? What model? What story do I want them to tell them about what belief is? So that every person, you may not like whether or not they were born into yeah. your family. Right. In other words, human, so you in right. By virtue of being a person, you have belief in God. Now it happens to be that you know some people are more aware and some people are less aware of it. But it's not, you are not, in other words, you are not the recipients of my value system that that I don't want them to think that way. In other words, I don't want to feel, them to feel that their sense of God comes from me. I want them to have a sense that their sense of God comes from them. And the only way they can have the sense of God comes from them is if they feel it's intrinsic in them. And the only way for them to feel that it's intrinsic to them is they would have to acknowledge that it's, not, it's intrinsic to everybody else too. It could be I'm more comfortable with it, whatever the case might be. But it's not something that arises from outside of myself and then imposed into me. It's something that you know, f um, grows from inside myself. And in general, that's how Hashem wants awareness of God to work. So therefore, the descent of world, which is the God reaching down so we can reach back up, has to be part and parcel of the creation, not something that's given after the creation. Good? Okay. Now, how does the descent of the world work? By the way, is anyone waiting for me to like explain the world and what it is? Okay, I'm not doing that today. Do you know why? Okay, I'm going to explain to you why. Because it misses the point. You've ever heard the expression that you lose the forest for the trees? Okay, sometimes people get so caught up in the details that they don't get the underlying point. So I'm interested in, in fleshing out the point. So how does it work? Like, what, what is the underlying um, um, technology, if you will? Right? There's like a how, like the underlying principle, like a car. How does a car work? The old combustion cars, not the new electric cars. How do they work? Right? You burn some gasoline. The gasoline when it explodes, when it burns, right? It makes a poof, explodes, right? And you know, if you have something that then expands, then you hook that up, right? To something, make something turn, and then voila, right? It's the basic idea, right? I mean, obviously, building an engine is more complicated than that, but if you understand that, you more or less understand how an engine works, right? How does an incandescent light work? And these are fluorescents, right? But the old ones, what? The old, you know those old light bulbs, the regular ones? They're called incandescents. How do they work? There's a very, 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 very thin wire. And because the wire is so thin, right, it heats up when the electricity is going through it. And really, that would cause it to burn very quickly. So you, fill, you surround it with this gas that keeps it from burning too quickly. 
which is why like at some point the light bulb burns out and then if you like you can hear a little jingling inside because the little filament has snapped because it's burned right um, and now if you make it thicker it'll last longer but it won't get as hot and if it doesn't get hot it won't glow right so like you don't have to know all the math and all the physics to understand the basic notion right that's what I want. Like, okay, so this idea that Hashem is going to r- reach down into the world, right, and, and he creates the world that way so that his being in the world is part of the world's of being so that the world can then reach up back to him. That's the idea. That's, that's the function it's supposed to serve, right? But then how does it do that? So what we need is we need a model of where we have a similar type of thing, okay? And the way we do that is if we think about how do people communicate and relate to each other, right? Because after all, um, social bonds are the idea that I reach out to others in a way that allows them to relate back to me, right? That's how social bonds are formed. Okay, so if you don't like your social bonds, like the ones with your parents or your siblings, or when you're married, your spouse, or your coworkers, or your boss, or the person in shul, right? The social bonds are not as they should be. What is the step number one? Okay, more precise. Change it. What do you change? How? <laughs> so following this idea of the center world, you have to be reaching out and relating to them in such a way that allows them to relate back to you differently. This is a very basic idea, right? If I, in other words, if I don't like the way things are going in this class, right? I could complain about the students, right? And I could be upset about the students, or I could change the way I reach out to the students, right, to allow this, that, and that provides the possibility for the students to relate back to me differently, right? Now, does that guarantee anything? No. Not really. Okay, but that's the way it works, right? So, um, I've mentioned this before, like, if someone, if a woman would write to the Rebbe about how her marriage isn't so great, what would the Rebbe write back? That she would have to change. Right, like, like, about how it's her responsibility to, like, change how she relates to the marriage and her husband, etc. But if the man were to write... Right, the same basic idea, right? The idea is that the other person's relating back to you, your role in that is how do you relate back out to them, right? So throwing down the ropes, they can climb back to you. Get the idea? So if we use this model of social bonds, right? And that always answered that? Um, when things were, when things had gotten to a point in a marriage, as far as I know from letters that I've seen, that there was no recovery available um, the Rebbe would try and avoid responding to things, and people kept pushing him to say he should speak to a Rav. The, Rebbe, so the Rebbe's two-way knowledge never ever sanctioned anyone ever getting divorced. I could be that there's letters that I don't know about. Um, and the Rebbe never sent anyone to marriage therapy. Oh, no, no, that, 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 I think, that I think that there, there probably are. They haven't been published, because I know that the, the Rebbe was not opposed to therapy and things like that. But even that, the first step, I mean, the therapists also tell you the same basic idea. Like, if you want your marriage to get any better, right, like, stop talking about what your spouse needs to change and what the problem with your spouse is and figure out what you're doing that makes it so hard for your spouse to relate to you. Right, that's what, that's like, that's one of the first things that marriage counselors have to, like, instill in, in the people like going to marriage counseling. So um, I don't see those as contradictory. Okay. Okay. As far as I know. I know letters where the Rebbe wrote very harshly against divorce and I know where people push the Rebbe's letters the Rebbe where the Rebbe basically like doesn't want to sanction it but he's not saying you're not allowed to so like go speak to a Rebbe and like whatever the Rebbe says I'm not getting it. He never said 
Not to my knowledge. And there are and there are letters and there are letters. Every letter of the every letter of the Rebbe about the issue of divorce that I have seen published is either not to do, get divorced or 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 shunting the issue off to someone else to deal with. Them very when very people very ask the reverend, the knows everyone very no, well. I know, I know, but like, just from a letter, that when a, a, a divorce, especially the first marriage of any divorce, is creating... I don't know anything about divorce, honestly. Well, from the Jewish perspective, when a, a husband and wife are married, that creates a unity within Hashem, yeah. in the spheres. And it's uniting Hashem's name, right? Um, and so divorce is like the most opposite thing. And whenever... Uh, uh, so when a Jewish couple gets divorced, that's creating a, 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 a tear in the whole fabric of reality. Yeah. In other words, every wonderful thing about the eternal eternality and the infinity of what a marriage is and how the Ein Sof and all of that is all now being hacked in two. Yeah. And from the perspective of Kabbalah, it's 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 it's, it's a, it is a, a divorce is violence against godliness. Now. Does the Torah allow divorce? Does the Torah sometimes require divorce? But um, the Rebbe as a, uh, I don't know what word you like to use, but as someone who's in touch with the full sense of what that is, does not want to lend his spiritual weight behind that. And we see there are many issues that are like that, where the Rebbe, when it's a question of permitting something which is, might be allowed or even necessary, but is ultimately from a spiritual point of view, just an overall negative force in the world that the, the Sadiqim tried not to be involved. Uh, so, and that seems to be, from my read of it, I'm not the Rebbe, the Rebbe never told me that that's the case, but that seems to be the thing. What else besides the divorce were things like that? Birth control. Really? People wanted the Rebbe to say, in this and this and this situation, is it okay? The Rebbe, the Rebbe, the Rebbe, my knowledge, if, 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 if the best you could get is ever say, speak to her of. Like, the Rebbe would never say, it's okay. What about for, like, I, I'm not getting involved. Like, I'm telling you what, what I've seen and what I've known from other people. Like, like that's... Um, when you ask the Rebbe medical questions, did he ever, like, ask you straight out or did you say seek medical? Oh, no, sometimes he asks straight out. Sometimes he asks straight out. Also, the Rebbe had a doctor named Rabbi Zelikson, not Doctor uh, Zelikson. What? Uh, yeah. What? So, Doctor Zelikson, um, if if the Rebbe sent you to Doctor Zelikson, then Doctor Zelikson um, wouldn't really treat you according to the laws of medical practice. What? What? Dr. Zelikson, Dr. Zelikson, if someone came to the Rebbe, if someone came, if, the Re, if someone came to Dr. Zelikson and said, the Rebbe sent me, Dr. Zelikson would ask, did the Rebbe say, see a doctor? The Rebbe say, go see Dr. Zelikson. Yeah. 
If the person said they're ever going to say, go, go see Dr. Zelikson, so then it didn't matter what you have. The, the Dr. Zelikson would just come up with something like, I don't know, eat an apple once a day or eat some matzah or like take a walk for 15 minutes. And then regardless of your problem, it would be fine. I think it's the Right? Yeah, not the same person. Different person. So Dr. So Dr. Zelikson, Dr. Zelikson uh, uh, used to like. He was a very chassidish. So he 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 knew that sometimes a tzaddik wants to hide the miracle behind a veneer of something natural, and so and sometimes a tzaddik wants to work through the natural world. And so, you know, if they ever if they ever sent someone to him, it was just to provide like plausible deniability that it's a miracle. But if, but if the rabbi said consult the doctor, the person consulted him, so then he, he would treat the person according to medicine. And so, yeah. Oh, yeah, he used to daven for hours and hours every day at 770. Yeah. People like, came to the rabbi with, like, people would come to him with, like, terminal illnesses. And, 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 and the rabbi would say, you see Dr. Zelkson, and he tells Dr. Zelkson, and Dr. Zelkson, like, wouldn't even look at their files. Like, the rabbi said to me, okay, like, uh, eat, eat you, you, what do you eat for breakfast? Cereal? Put some bananas in the cereal, it'll be fine. Or something like that, and they would get cured. He was an internationally renowned doctor, by the way. <laughs> anyway, um, he did treat the rabbit. He did treat the rabbit. Yeah. To think of what else there is, like that. But those are the, those are the two that that stand out. That. I just know that the Rebbe did not ever, to my knowledge, it could be there is, that the Rebbe, you, you can't find a letter where the Rebbe said, yes, go ahead. But it wasn't that there was against him. It's not that the Rebbe never said, the, 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 if people would push the Rebbe, if people would push the Rebbe that this, they felt was really important, the Rebbe would say, if you think it's really important, then go speak to the Rebbe. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying you can't. Right, the Rebbe would say such a thing like, I'm not saying, but go speak to Rob. That's literally a no, and underlined. No, because no. Robert didn't want to be the one to bring in that's, the perspective yeah, of right. into the world, right? right? I know people. I know people who got divorced. I know people who got divorced, and I know people. Yeah, got divorced. Why do you want to bring them in? Bring Yeah, like I'll give you another thing. There's there's a there's a there's a nigan that they're ever taught. Darkachalikeno. Darkachal Akenu is, is from the Kippur Davening. Darkachal Akenu um, means it's, it's your way, it's your way, um, Hashem, to be patient okay. to, those that, to those that are good and also those that are evil. Um, see our, 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 our standing and our state, which is. Which is um, destitute and empty, meaning we've got no merits, we're worthless. Something we say in Yom Kippur. The Rebbe taught this nigger on Simchas Torah, and the Rebbe said there's an idea that Simchas Torah, negative things don't have power. Simchas Torah can't hurt you. So anytime the Rebbe wanted to speak like really harshly, he said it or spoke on Simchas Torah, and this nigger, he never... What? He'd wait till Simchas Torah... Yeah, there's a lot of things the Rebbe spoke very, very harshly, like very harshly, was often on Simchas, only on Simchas Torah, there are certain exceptions, and and nigunim like, what? No, no, because Simchas Torah has a special power that no. negative thing doesn't cause negative things to happen. Oh. But this nigun, the Rebbe sang, taught it on Simchas Torah, and never sang it again. When they sang it by the Febrengen, the Rebbe wouldn't sing it. So why do I sing it? Because we're not the Rebbe. If we if we say that we're all a bunch of empty people, it's not the end of the world. But if the Rebbe says that we're empty people, that infuses a level of truth into it. 
That's what the nigan means. The A Amida say no dalim verekim. The A Amida say no dalim verekim. What? That's right. And so things that are negative, in general, the Rebbe avoided saying negative things about Jews. Very, very, like to the extreme. The Rebbe, in fact, has avoided saying the word evil. He would say, loy toiv or hepecha toiv or hepecha toiv or hepecha toiv. All tzaddikim know that there's tzaddikim. Yeah. I mean, do you get like a little card that says you're part of the tzaddik club? Yeah, here's your gold card. <laughs> it's possible to be mistaken yeah. about it. There's a p- possible. That's what it says. In, it says in Tanya. It's possible for a person. It's possible for a person to be humble, which means they don't think about themselves, and therefore they presuppose that they're not fundamentally different from everyone else. Um, and therefore, the fact that they don't feel an evil inclination, they chalk that up to the amount of thinking about Hashem that they're doing. So they kind of assume that they're probably some kind of a bainini davening all day, contemplating Hashem all day. And if they were to stop, they would discover some inner Yitzhar that they're just not aware of. Because why would they assume that they're different than anybody else? What? Yeah, the, the, the Gemara brings example of Rabba and Tanya that, that was like that. So. Me? I'm kidding. No, I'm not, no, I'm not a tzaddik. Far from a tzaddik. Wait, do I know? I mean, as in, do others Probably. No. I have a friend who's like talking about the rabbis and 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 the rabbis what? Who says you know tzaddikim? How do you know? You did a survey? Okay. Okay. Tzaddikim, tzaddikim are very rare, and Hashem sprinkles them throughout the throughout generations. Why can't? There's a rule that you have to be. You did it. What's that? You need. There's a rule that says you need to be a lavavatur to be a tzaddik. That's a fascinating rule. I'd like to see where you discovered that. Like I tend to be the extremist here. Okay. Anyway. What's his name? No. Okay. If you're asking a Chabad person that, that's really good to know. No, I'm saying no. If you asked him, if you, no, I'm saying like, there's something like, if you, if you were to ask him, if you were to describe what a tzaddik is, a guy's ultimate describes, you would ask him, does that describe you? Like honestly, he would say, if he was being honest, he would say no. More than that, if you asked him what a bain is, he probably would also say no. Being a bainini is like a lofty thing. Okay, so it have to be. Maybe it's the milkman. Who, who says they have to be famous people? I'm saying they're there. We don't know them. They don't know themselves. I don't know, but they're definitely there. Do you know any sadikim? I'm very stressed out. No, I don't. I mean, like, there's no sadikim alive, like in the physical world. Like they're alive. There are. I just don't happen to know anybody. Can we name any? Do you want me to name some sadikim? I can't. I can't. I don't, yeah. I don't know. That's alive now? I don't know anyone yeah. that's alive now. Like, I just don't get it. You can't know some of the topic anyway, because he's just not doing that because he's not being in love, or does he not have bad in environment? I'm asking. I'm even talking about his name. 
I, I, I think it's a little bit of a silly question because, like, how are you supposed to know? Like, I just have this friend who's always like, oh, yeah, my rabbi is a do you want me to tell you what a tzaddik is? No. you want me to tell you what a tzaddik is? Yeah, very, very, very bottom line. A tzaddik is a person who is motivated by only one thing. Hashem. That's right. Only. My love of Hashem? Yeah. That's it. Basically, a tzaddik is a measure of love. You can't have that kind of love without a certain amount of fear, but it's a measure of love. Yeah. So a person doesn't exist now? I didn't say it didn't exist. I just said, like, that's what it is, right? So, I mean, ask yourself, who do you know that loves Hashem so much that that's the only motivating force in their life? I don't know. I don't know anyone that well. Okay. I'm saying I can't read his life. You'll never know. I can't read his life. It's not something you'll ever know. So then, like, oh, I don't know what the point of learning about it is. Like, if he's, like, grabbing a guy in a shtickle that, like, doesn't know anyone knows he whatever, that could be on that level. Well, then, like... Then how do you know? Yes, but is there what? a topic? I know one. Okay, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. Know. Yeah. Like, the rabbi is the best way you'll be able to find an actual name. Oh, I can name. You want me to name Sadiqim? I can name Sadiqim. Just I don't know what he wants to know. And I'm not like the obvious, like, Moshe Rabbeinu. Okay. You want me to name non Lubavitcher, non Moshe Rabbeinu Yeah. Okay, ready? Yeah. Okay. The Belzer Rav was a topic. There we go. Wait, what yeah. <laughs> when did he die? In the <laughs> se- 1960s-ish? 70s? Well, there haven't been any Mobiles or Rebains. There is, but They're not, the same. not the same. Not the same. Right. Uh, who, who's like the last living? Living, physical? No, I don't know. I don't know if people are holy, but I don't know. Yeah, no, he's saying public ones. Like the yeah, Belzer. public ones. That's why I don't think there's a deacon now. So I don't know. Well, no. I don't know. Aaron Belzer was a tzaddik. Um, so we went to Tiberius and met with the new Nothing new, like the current cook, Rob Cook. Yeah. They're using it in a different context. Okay, okay, let's let's backtrack. This way is way off the topic I wanted to teach. Yeah. But the word tzaddik means righteous. Yeah. Righteous is a word. What is the concept meant by righteous? That you have some kind of expectation of how things ought to be in an ideal way, and that person is like that, right? Yeah. Okay, so which means that the exact criteria for what it means to be a tzaddik changes on context, right? If my child cleans up their room, right, it's not wrong for me to say, oh, you're, one, you're such a little tzaddik, right? Okay. Right? Yeah. And if I say, oh, there's a, there's a, there's a, but now Rebbe is describing the inner character of a person. He says, what is it? You're a Jew. You have a godly soul. So what should a person who has a godly soul be motivated by? One thing and one thing only. And is that the case about most of us? No. Okay, so then there's something fundamentally missing with most of us. And there's a whole book about how to deal with that, which is called Tanya, which is where we're learning. Yeah, it's just really hard. Well, you're not supposed to be. You're not supposed to worry about like whether you've achieved being a tzaddik or someone else's tzaddik. I'm not supposed to worry about. Um, not being a Russia. We all are. I know, but that's something to worry about. She's trying to come from here now. Don't worry. Okay. We all are. Don't worry. We're in okay. Fine. So. We really are. <laughs> okay. So you have to reach out in order for the other person to be able to reach back, right? That's the idea of the descent of worlds. That's the idea of the Seder Stalshalis. Okay. How does that work? How do you do that? Like, what is the actual mechanism by which that works? Anyone have any idea? Like, 
I mean, you, you do have social relationships with other people, right? So how do you reach out to others in a way that allows them to connect back to you? You talk to them. Um, you do. You talk to them. What? You, like, summon the Okay, well, this gets into the, this gets into this gets into a, a a problem, right? Because if you talk about something that interests them, then they're gonna have a problem when they try and use that to relate back to you because it doesn't necessarily interest you. You need right. In other words, you need, to, need in other words, in other words, what you need to do is you need to find some like, some kind of mutual mutualness, right? You need to find a way of that you're. You're speaking to them, right? So it resonates with them or whatever it is, right? It's something of interest to them. It's something that, that speaks to them. It's on their level. And yet at the same time, it's staying true to yourself, right? So if I present myself in a way that's very relatable, but in no way actually reflects who I am, is that going to actually, actually allow someone to relate back to me? No, I'll give you an example of this, okay? Um, there are many people who are public personalities, Right, they get on stage, they do a lot of stuff. Okay. Um, are those people introverted or extroverted? Right. Well, first off, you don't always know. You don't always know. Uh, but oh, I, and I, I'm not. There, there's a large number, whether it's a majority or a big minority, is not the point here. But a large number of them are actually very, very heavy introverts. Very heavy Introverted. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so extroverted. I would never do that. I'm too scared. Oh, that's the thing. Extroverted people, they're naturally very engaged with everyone around them, and so what everyone around them thinks about them. The introverted person is not actually on stage. That's what allows them to be on stage. Yeah. Because they're presenting something which is very resonant with everybody else, but that thing isn't them. It's a facade. And because it's a facade, right, they're kind of safe. And people like really resonate with them. But then what happens when people want to like take that, relate to them, they love their performance, they love their speech, they love what they spoke about, whatever the case is, right? And now they want to take that and carry that on, reach back to the person, connect them on a personal individual level. Those people, like, it doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? It's not that. Yeah. And then there are people that are really actually putting themselves out there. And putting yourself out there is actually makes, requires you to be a lot more vulnerable. But if you actually do resonate, then the people right, connect to you. Right? And obviously, it's not a black and white thing. I'm just using this as an example, right? So, like, if, if I have zero interest in in things that you are interested, in, and I talk to you about them in order to make small talk to make you feel like I care about you, that's actually not going to work too well in creating a social bond, right? On the other hand, if I don't acknowledge the differences between us and I just go around blabbing and acting as if you know, I can do my thing irrespective of who you are, that's not going to work either, right? Okay, so I have to modulate myself in order to reach where the other person is so that they can then come back to me, right? Make sense? Yeah. Okay. So... The, the, what ends up happening is that there's a trade-off going on between me and the other person. And the trick here is that the trade-off shouldn't go too extreme in one direction. Right? In other words, if it's too much authentically myself, I'm not going to be relatable, right? And if it's too much on their terms, then I've become lost. That make sense? Okay. If you want to think about it in a, in a marriage, okay? If, 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 
if somebody is working really hard to make the marriage work, they might actually not be in the marriage at all because they're so much trying to make the marriage work that they're not bringing who they are into the picture, right? And you can have someone who's like fully bringing themselves into the picture, but now the whole thing revolves around that. There's no modulation, there's no acknowledgement that there's another side to the, right? So this is the issue that we face in all sorts of social dynamics, and that's basically the same issue that you face between God and reality, right? How does God reach out to the world in such a way which is retains some vestige of a notion of godliness and at the same time can be integrated into the world? If it's too worldly, it's not going to work. If it's too godly, it's not going to work. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. So what's the rule with trade-offs? You know what trade-offs are? Right? You can have one, you can't have the other, you can't have both. What do trade I trade-offs work? That you have to be willing to compromise, right? By the way, you know the Rebbe hates compromise? Yeah, Rebbe hates compromise. As general as a principle. Because if you compromise, then that means that, every, that, it means that both things are weaker. Compromise, in other words, what I want you to understand is that, and this is, this is, this is going to be the key idea, is that I've just described that getting along, interacting, is a kind of a compromise between yourself and the other, right? That's the Seder, what is Seder Hishtalshus? What is the descent of the world? It is a negotiated compromise between godliness and the world. Godliness will engage the world, and that means it's more worldly. And that comes at the expense of how godly. But it's not too godly. That expense comes at the expense of how worldly. And then there's gradations of that. And, right, and that's, if you think about a lot of relations, we're negotiating the compromise between people, between spouses, between parents and children, between business partners, right? right? Between you and the larger community, right? Everything is a negotiated compromise of like reaching out in a way that I can be connected back to. And that there's a tension there, right? Okay. The Torah is not part of that process. It's not this kind of negotiated compromise. Oh, it can't. Corn is only right. So the Torah goes from God to the world in such a way that is the godliness of God being compromised? No. no. Is it reaching the world in a genuine way? Yeah. Yes. So instead of it being a trade-off, what's happening? You're, you're getting both, right? In other words, right? In other words, like, like there, there's, there's, there's. The, what the Torah is doing is it's violating a basic idea, right? The basic idea is known as one cannot have their cake and eat it too. You've heard this idea? You can have your cake and eat it too. What does that mean? If you eat the cake, then what? Then it's gone. And if you want to have the cake for later, then you can't eat it. Right? So you're forced to decide whether you want to keep the cake for later or eat it now, but you can't have both, right? Trade-off, right? If I want to reach out to someone more distant to myself, I have to want to compromise myself, right? But if I compromise myself too much, then I won't really be reaching out, right? And that, that, that tension exists in all of our relationships, right? And that's the tension that exists between God and the world, and that's mediated through this process called the descent of the worlds, and that's what that is. Comes along and turns like, no, 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 you can have both. You can have your cake and eat it too. It can be unadulterated, pure God, and uncompromised, while at the same time, pure. being part of our physical reality. <laughs> right? That totally upends the, this idea, right? Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So, how does that work? Right. In other words, how can you reach out to someone else in such a way that you're not compromising anything, but it's totally reaching them? Do you see the problem? Yeah, you gotta be glossy. Well, I mean, what? It seems impossible. Well, the answer to that is that the Torah has progressively descended through hidden stages. The solution to this problem is if you descend through hidden, hidden stages. If you, in other words, the whole idea that there's the needs for this compromise is because you're descending not through hidden stages. If they're not hidden stages, what are they? Revealed. Revealed. So there's these two. There's these two. Sta- there's these two. Tracks. There's the revealed track and there's the hidden track. In the revealed track, what happens? The more I'm revealed, the more I'm revealed, the less space there is for what? The more what I'm talking about is what I think and what I want and what I'm interested in on my terms, the way I understand it. The less it's for the other person, right? Not even talking to them in terms they would even relate to, right? And the more I modulate myself to take to, to work based on their their notions and their norms and their expectations and their experiences, right? The less, right? And so the more, so to speak, they're they're revealed. The less I'm revealed, right? And the question is, how do you modulate that in a healthy, constructive way? What? Well, yeah, but that doesn't work in every relationship. Do you want me to give you some examples? Okay. Parents and toddlers, they should meet halfway. No. Okay. Therapists and their patients. No. Teachers and students. No. Okay. Spouses, where one is going through a difficult time. The other one, right? one, one, one lost the best friend. The other one didn't, right? It's her best friend or his best friend. Right. These are these are asymmetrical kinds of things, right? So the idea of meeting in just an, a halfway point doesn't make a lot of sense. Halfway points make a lot of sense when it's like you and your best friend going out for lunch. So most of our lives we don't meet halfway. That's right. Halfway is actually quite rare. The question is, how much should I make it that you can come to me, and how much do I have to come to you? It's rarely let's meet in the middle. So then, what happens like when somebody wants to get married? Do you want the honest answer? Yes. You sure? Yeah. Okay, this is what I'm going to tell you is descriptive. You know what descriptive means? I'm describing the way reality is. Yeah. Not prescriptive. Meaning I'm not saying this is the way reality should be. Okay. It's going to be the wife. And you That's the answer. To say that. That's the answer. Wait, I'm, I'm, who's going to be more... Who's going to make more movement towards the other? Like who's Who changes their last name? The woman. Okay, please. No, I mean, and, and whether, this is, whether this is a good thing or a bad thing is a discussion for another time. You're asking like an honest question, like how does it actually tend to work? Yeah. Right? <laughs> now, 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 but, 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 but the more honest answer, the more, what's that? The more honest answer is that it's actually dynamic. 
which means that it depends on the issue and depends on the circumstance, depends on the time. The decision can be one going more than half. Right. Why do you think it's going to be the woman? The woman is reality. Yeah, why, why is it the woman? You want, you want, like, I can give the answer from any different, from different, different. you want, like, the answer, like, according to Hasidus? No. <laughs> or the answer, or the answer according to, like, you know, um, I mean, there's all kinds of facts. Also, no. but when you have a phenomenon, you can explain why it is that way in many different ways. You want me to give you like a, 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 a an answer based on evolutionary biology? I give you all sorts of answers. What kind of answer do you want? Psychological. Psychologically. And then Psycho. The, the psychological. The 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 the, the, the psychological answer um, tends to be that men statistically seem to have stronger need to feel validated through positions of authority, respect, power, um, decision-making than women. That's not like an absolute. That's more statistically the case. And um, women statistically seem to get more validation by being successful in some kind of supportive, nurturing role. Now, whether that is an ingrained biological fact or that is conditioned through society is like an interesting debate, which, which I don't actually have an opinion, um, but it does seem to be that that is the case. Um, you don't tend to find men sitting around talking about whether they are good fathers and how to be a better father unless like father, unless there's something like really wrong with their children. Whereas you do tend to see mothers of their own volition sitting around and talking like, am I a good enough mother and how I can be a better mother? Is that like that's some kind of self-fulfilling and validating thing? Um, whereas you do tend to see, have men like, like having, a, and again, this is tends to. So if you wanted a psychological explanation, that would be a reasonable one. I don't know that that's absolutely true, but that's like a reasonable explanation. Mm -hmm. um, there's other kinds of explanations as well. Um, but the, the actual truth is, especially if the marriage is going to be healthy, is that, that that is not a fixed thing. It's just like an overall, when you take everything into account, there tends to be more movement on the side of the wife towards the husband, the husband towards the wife. That being said, like... It's not the case that it's a one-way thing, and it's dynamic. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Do you see that when you're dating, like that she's gonna compromise more on values, or when it comes to like so, if you're compromising on values, you shouldn't get married. Like, I think the woman <laughs> is more stubborn than. Like 10 different no, it's not like, I'm not changing this for you. I'm like, what? Well, I mean, this gets this gets into how like first off, one we're dealing in stereotypes, right? So the the danger of dealing in stereotypes yeah, is that everybody's stereotype. individual. What? I'm just doing my stereotypes. Right, and the second thing is also is that you also have to differentiate. There's different levels of change, right? There's like behavioral change and things like that. Um, in which case, like, it gets quite complicated because there is this notion of passive action and passive aggressiveness and all that kind of stuff, right? So um, th there's a joke, right, that, that um, all men think they're in charge because their wives, may, you know, their wives make them think that that's what's going on, but that's not really true, right? That the, the, the wife is really running the show, but she's convinced her husband that, she's re that he's really making all the decisions. Mm -hmm. And, like, okay, maybe there's truth. I mean, it's not true. I'm not, like... But if you're talking, so I was talking about in a sense where like you're actually building a sense of like a genuine close relationship. Um, you tend to find overall, if you like zoom out, that that actually is the case, that there's much more 
um, movement um, of the wife towards the husband overall than the husband towards the wife. That being said, it's dynamic and it's just not an absolute thing. Right. So. certain things, right? And it's I mean, I'm hesitant to get into this because the speaking in stereotypes like only gets you so far. And like, if you get into the details, then every relationship is unique. Right? I'm just saying, if you zoom out and look at things in the aggregate, you'll see that. What I'm saying, but I don't think, and that's why I said this is descriptive. I don't think you should think of this as a model for how to have a relationship. It's not, like, oh, well, by virtue of the fact that I'm the man, she should change because overall, or vice versa. I don't think that's like you. You really have to, in a real life relationship, you and in any relationship, you have to actually deal with the people, not the roles. That makes sense. Like individuals. So, yeah. Not the fact that you're a woman or a man. Right. That, that's, I mean, the fact that you're a woman or a man will come through with the fact that you are actually a woman or a man and it will affect you, right? So you don't have to, like, role play being a man or a woman. Um, and, and in that sense, so as I said, as a description of what seems to happen in the aggregate, it is true that when women seem to move more towards the men than men towards women. That being said, it's very dynamic. It's very individual. It's not absolute. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that as a, as a something that even necessarily is to be aspired for. I'm not saying it not, I'm just, okay. So, but, but the whole thing is that in all these relationships, there's this level of revelation, right? Um, it's very simple, like the topic of conversation, how much is the topic of conversation, you know, based on me and how much is the topic of conversation based on you, right? For instance, like, very simple, standard traditional education, who picks the class topic of the class? Teacher. Teacher, right? Um, there are other educational models, Montessori. Anyone ever taught in Montessori school? Nobody, just learn what that is. Okay, in Montessori, who picks the topic of what we're gonna learn today? Oh, okay. Child, right? Now, I'm not saying that that's wrong, and I'm not saying that's right, I'm just saying that the reason why those two systems have a difference is because you, know, you can't have the teacher come up with a lesson plan and the student pick the topic of the class that day. Those are not gonna work, right? Maybe you can have some blending, some of this, whatever, right? right? I mean, okay. So you see, like, when we're talking about on this overt level, w there is this issue of how much me versus how much you. Good? Yes. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Usually say at the end of the class. I'm <laughs> sorry. Okay. Now, parent goes into the room of their child while they're sleeping and they give their child um, a kiss on the cheek. How much is that the parent and how much is that the child? 100% parent. 100% parent, right? 90% parent, 10% child. No. No, no but, but it's 100% the parent. No, actually, that's not true. Cuteness is only for other adults. That's what it says in Chassidus. Cuteness is for other adults. So what, what does it mean to sit with kids? The 
parents as a parents naturally again there's always exceptions parents naturally find their children adorable by virtue of the fact that they're their children other people find little kids cute as God's way of making sure that you care about them what parents don't sit and look at their kids and be like oh my god you're the cutest kid in the world I love you so much really Really? Have you been a parent? <laughs> no, but like, like <laughs> the way that like Griff Camargo's granddaughter comes in here and we're like, hey, wait a minute, she's just like, like she's been with her all day. She drives her crazy. That's, That's why I create the example when the child is sleeping. <laughs> when the when the issues of dealing with the infant or toddler are stripped away, and it's just the pure fact that this is my adorable child. <laughs> There's some steps before that, like getting married. Okay. Okay. Um, so, so that's a hundred. Was like that's a hundred percent the parent, right? That's a hundred percent the parent, right? Hello. Okay. 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 Now. Now. Is the is now? Does that reach the child? No, the kid has no idea the parent kissing him or anything. I think so, actually. So let's think about this for a second. Let's think about this for a second, and this requires us to be a little bit deeper. Okay. Do you think that having your parents come in night while you're sleeping and giving you a kiss registers somewhere in your psyche? Yeah. Sure. Probably. Like, because if you know that every night your mom is coming. No, no, even without no, you knowing. Know. Without knowing. It does. It does. It does. How? How? Would you like to know how? Okay. I will tell you how. Without actually telling you how, but I'll tell you how, okay? Um, have you ever tripped? Okay. What? When what when you tripped, were your hands out in front of you as you were falling? I mean, if you start tumbling, no. But if you tripped without tumbling, so you're just falling over, your hands are in front of you, right? Okay. There was once a person who tripped. They tripped walking down the street. They tripped, and they broke their nose. And the reason they broke their nose is because their hands weren't out in front of them. And. Um, so they went to the doctor, and the doctor said, you need, a, you need a CAT scan or MRI. I don't remember which one. I said, why? He says, well, because you probably are suffering from some sort of stroke or something or a brain disease because there's no way your hands wouldn't jump out in front of you as you're falling unless something is wrong with your brain. Because, and you can try it. Try falling, and you'll see that you have to consciously exert effort to keep your hands from going in front of you because that does not it is it is not the kind of thing that works through oh I see it I register it I have the re conscious reflection that it's happening to me and now I make a decision of what to do about it right that's not how that works in fact what's really weird um, is that you can actually anyway I don't recommend doing this but you can destroy certain parts of the visual cortex in the brain and the person will still react because to all sorts of visual things because certain parts of what you see aren't even registered physically at all. Okay? Um, so, con or aren't registered, so registered consciously at all, right? Now you add the idea that we have souls. Like, that's just on the level of neurology, right? Now add the idea that we have souls. 
right? So the idea that everything that affects us is filtered through our conscious awareness is, a, is just a silly idea, okay? Um, and people are often completely unaware of what's affecting them, right? Um, that's why they, they did experiments like, you know, um, with like subliminal messaging, right? You not even know what you're seeing. You know what subliminal messaging is? Mm -hmm. Subliminal messaging is like you have, um, you know, the old, like old film strips where you have like, so you have 28 images for every second. Mm -hmm. So the idea is, well, if we put in like a 29th and it says like, you're thirsty, buy Coke. But because it's the 29th, because you can't see individual images when they're like more than 28 the second or whatever it is. So you don't see the image, but consciously, but, but the idea was, and this is an interesting debate where this actually works, is that maybe that plants a message in your brain. They did. That's what they did. And they're always still trying to find ways to do that, right? Um, and there's all sorts of things that affect us. And so the idea that, and like when you're sleeping, you are taking in stimulus. The proof being is if your alarm clock goes off, you wake up. So you can't say, I don't hear when I'm sleeping. It is true you hear when you're sleeping because you wake up to noise, right? So that kiss does register in some way and it has actually profound effects. What? I think my dad um, always tells us he was in the South Africa for three years and he never used to wake up for the drill alarm because it was in his dream. And he went through all the actions in his sleep and he wouldn't wake up. I do that sometimes. My alarm goes off, and I and I dream, and I and I have like this this. I think it's almost like quasi lucid dream, because like I'm dreaming that I'm turning off my alarm, and then I'm going getting up to get up, be on time for chassidus, and then my alarm goes off again, and at that point I realize I must be dreaming that my because it doesn't make sense because I, I already dreamt that I get up, got up and did everything. Yeah, that can happen. Anyway, so 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 it really does. And in fact, in a certain sense, it might even be impacting the child in a much deeper, profound way than if the parent tells the child that they love them and they just directly in a conscious way, right? Mm -hmm. The sense of being loved and valued that is instilled in that child of being kissed on a regular basis from their parents while they're asleep, right? Mm -hmm. Has a very profound impact on the person. Okay. All the more so, you know. So, so, so. Is this a question of needing to modulate between how much of it is the parent and how much of it is the child? Or it's 100% the parent and 100% hitting the child? Like there's no tension here. Nothing needs to be compromised, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, but why is that? It's not revealed, right? Right? You're not, it's not, you're not exposed. You're not like sharing how much you love your child and the child is an experience. It's not what's happening, right? In other words, where does this issue come about how much um, me versus how much you is when we're talking about this level called gila, this level called revelation, this level that can be experienced and processed. But if we're talking about something much more essential, much more fundamental, it's possible that it is 100% me and also 100% you. For instance, let's think about the difference between if a teacher and student, and let's, instead of thinking about the actual teaching, let's think about the value of teaching. Is there a need to negotiate the value of teaching between the teacher and the student? Mm -hmm. right. It could be that this teacher values teaching that student 100% and the student values learning from the teacher 100%. There's no need to compromise that. Right? And that, there's no change that's going from one to the other. Right? They're totally on the same page there. Right? 
But when the teacher starts talking, now they're ready, there's a difference, because the teacher knows and the student doesn't know. The teacher is trying to convey and the student is trying to learn, and how do you modulate those two different roles, right? That's, okay? What about marriage? What part of marriage doesn't involve any kind of compromise or negotiating? By the way, in the Jewish marriage ceremony, right, the, the chassid and kala, right, they get married under a chuppah. What does the chuppah represent? What? A home, right? The idea that there's something that isn't defined in terms of one or in terms of the other, but encompasses both equally. So what is that in a marriage? The fact that you're married. Now you have to think of what does that mean that we're married? What does it mean to be married? Not how do we have a relationship, but what does it mean to be married, right? Um, so um, that, that and, and the fact that you value that and that's important, right? If that's in place, right, then there's a very deep connection. And that connection is a hidden kind of connection, right? That's not something that, that's something that doesn't need to be negotiated. Then the question is like who talks and who listens and how do we deal with our different approaches to finances and blah, blah, blah. That's the revealed level and that has to be negotiated. So what level, the Torah is not coming down to the normal channel of communication, of sharing, of processing, of interacting, of relating, the normal Seder Stalshul's mode, the normal interacting mode, right? It's saying, no, 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 that what is above is exactly the same thing as below, and we say, well, but above isn't like below at all, and the answer is, yeah, but that difference is only on the revealed level, and the hidden, if we're talking about something in its essential course, it doesn't matter. Right? And you can go on and on and think all sorts of examples, right? The, the bond we say that exists between parents and children that doesn't depend on the relationship is a similar kind of thing. So we have all these kinds of examples where there's something that goes from one to the other that doesn't need, that really is 100% the giver, really is 100% the receiver, even though we're giving receiver are different because we're not talking about interacting and relating and sharing and that kind of revealed dimension. We're talking about something that is, that, is, that is essential, the downside of essential is that it is hidden. Right? That kiss doesn't, 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 doesn't say anything. It conveys everything but says nothing. Right? The, the fact that the, the, the couple really value that, the, that they have a marriage and they want that marriage to work and they're willing to do whatever needs to be done to make that marriage work and, and to be creative in how to make that relationship function, right? that really binds them in a way more than whatever actual interactions and sharing that they have together. And, and so on and so forth. So the saying is that the Torah descends, but don't think of the Torah descending the way we think of everything else descending. Everything else descends in a way that as it descends, it's undergoing some kind of compromise. That reaching you means compromising me to some degree. Not totally, because if it's totally, then it's not, gonna reach, then it's not me reaching you. And the Torah is not compromised at all. But the reason it's not compromised is because it's not overt, it's not revealed, it's not fleshed out, it's just the core. Right? So that, that's this idea of it descends stage after stage in a hidden descent, not a revealed descent. Make sense? Yes? No? Okay. All right. I think that is the fastest we've ever done a paragraph. Although, to be fair, this paragraph is just building on the ideas we saw in the previous paragraph, right? Okay, um, here's the w w w quick thing before we end. Um, we have 
we have the rest of this week, which is Wednesday, right? Which is tomorrow. And then we have next week, which is the week before Purim. And then we have next week, which is the week after Purim. And we have the week after that, right? I believe so. I believe so. Maybe, there, maybe there's another week. Well that, well, that would be two weeks before Pesach, yes. And then after Pesach. One second. And then we have whatever it is, three, four weeks off of during Pesach. Okay. So the question, the question is, and I'm throwing this out to you, a little Montessori stuff, okay? I'm throwing this out to you. We are obviously going to finish chapter four soon. Um, because as I said before, the rest of the chapter is just building on this theme. So each paragraph I'm going to focus on, you know, what's new and what's different, but it's not radically new ideas. It's taking this idea and adding a new aspect to it. So we're going to finish, I mean, depending on how quickly we go, we're, not, we're going to finish relatively quickly. Chapter four. Um, and so then, the, what? Hey, it's Tom Okay, so I, I, I want to present a few options, and I don't want you to decide now. I want you to think about it amongst yourself. Yeah, I want you to think about it amongst yourself. Um, and this is this is a. Uh,